Alleluia. Christ is risen. One more time. Alleluia. Christ is risen. That's more like it. Let us pray. Loving God, we have come once again to the garden, to the tomb, to look inside and see what has happened. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I'll just say that for the youngest among us, if my sermon gets too long, we have rocking chairs back there, and we have a chapel over here. Get up and move around as you need to. That goes for the rest of you as well. <laughs> it is great to be with you this morning. It is great to see this fantastic array on this summer morning of Easter on our front lawn and here in worship. I know you came this morning because you wanted to peek inside the tomb and see if it really happened. That may not be what you told yourself when you came here this morning or when you decided to come here, whether that was five years ago when you joined this church or at about 10:15 this morning when you decided to come and check it out. But I believe at some deep level, at some soulful, spiritual, theological gut level, we all came here today because we needed to peek inside the tomb again and just see if it really happened. It's something to peek inside the tomb. I was reminded this week that the tomb is sometimes more of a reality for us than we normally think about. I was with a colleague this week who comes from the African-American Pentecostal tradition, a, a great tradition in which the Holy Spirit of God reigns supreme in worship. And he had visited our church recently, and he said, I have to tell you, I visit a lot of mainline, old guard, Protestant churches, white ones, and they're always kind of like run-down retirement homes <laughs> in which in which people seem to have be decrying the fate of their church that is on the decline and woe is me and lots of hand-wringing. And he said it was a treat to come into your church and realize that that was not the case. And I'm grateful to say that. Our retirees are full of vim and vigor and sometimes <laughs> and vinegar. So it is, I'm grateful for that. But we are a fully intergenerational church where I believe the Spirit is alive, and I feel grateful to be here on this Sunday, as on every Sunday, in a church that is trying to be a place for the good news of Jesus Christ. But you can go in a lot of churches these days where that's not the case. They feel like tombs. I've also thought about our healthcare system recently and how that sometimes is becoming a little tomb-like. Many of you know that four weeks ago I took a little slip on the ice which resulted in an ambulance trip and then a night in the ER and then surgery a little bit later and I'm doing well, many thanks to the prayers and support of this community. But the bills all came to the house this week. Now the last time I was in the emergency room was in college and I think the bill was about $50, maybe $100, and my frugal depression era parents were not very happy about that. I knew that healthcare costs were high, but I wasn't quite prepared for what I would get. Some of you know this story very well. 
The cost of my little split-second slip on the ice was about one-eighth of my yearly salary. Now, maybe that's not so much, but it seems like a lot to me. And thanks to the generosity of this congregation and the foresight of my denomination, I have good health care. As our former moderator liked to say, I don't have Cadillac health care, but I have a good Buick. <laughs> and I just say, for the record, I'm grateful for a good Buick. It serves us just fine. So I will pay about 10% of the costs. But I had to imagine, as I spoke to a doctor friend of mine this week who has served in both the Canadian and the American system, and said to me, this is evidence of the brokenness of our system. And I thought, what if I were a father of three children working a manual labor job for a company that didn't believe in health insurance for its employees in a state that didn't believe it was a human right? I would be up a serious creek. I talked to a friend of mine who works in a low-income health clinic on the Lower East Side who told me about how messed up he thinks the system is. Just talk to any doctor or nurse or anyone you know in the industry. And I said, what is going to happen to change it? And he said, only if the consumers rise up and demand it. Which to me means Easter people doing what they should do when the tomb is empty. Or you can think about our political system. Actually, think about our penal system. Our, we, we talk about that a lot here because we are trying to do our work in this church to end mass incarceration. And prisons are overcrowded with good, decent, promising people, strong people, smart people, who are being taught how to be more of a criminal in the system and being re-entered again and again. It is a tomb in a lot of these places. Now I say all this, I'm gonna to get to the good news, but I say all this because I know that it's easy for us to go from Palm Sunday to Easter and forget what happens in between. It's like those of us who fly from Boston to San Francisco and forget about the Rust Belt. We tend to skip over it. On Palm Sunday, our children led us in here with waving palms and the hymn all glory laud and honor to thee eternal king on whom the lips of children made glad hosannas ring and we had a great time of it here on palm sunday but then as the week went on it got worse by wednesday things were looking bad and by thursday evening they were looking inevitable and so we huddled here together on thursday night around the communion table in groups of 12 to remember what it was like in that upper room. And there is a sort of intimacy and compassion and humanity shared when we serve the communion to one another in groups of 12 while the rest of the congregation sings old-timey comforting hymns like Blessed Assurance and Just As I Am and As We Gather at the Table. But then as we all got fed and left the table, it went downhill from there. His best friend, the person he was going to entrust the rest of his ministry to denied him after he said he wouldn't do it. And another guy, Judas, sold his soul to sell Jesus' body to the authorities with 30 pieces of silver, and we dropped that in metal bowls here on Thursday night just so we know what that sounds like. And then we strip away the dinner party, and we strip away the altar, and we dress it in black, and this place becomes like a mausoleum, like a tomb. And then we come back on Good Friday, and we go through the seven last words as we witness an execution. 
And this year, as with last year, we paired contemporary images with the seven last words just so we can think about what it is like today, how these words resonate today. For Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. We showed a Ku Klux Klan rally in Columbia, South Carolina, remembering that these are our sisters and brothers who may not act how we think they should act. So what does it mean if we're to forgive them? We showed two Canadian women sponsoring a Syrian family reading to the kids on the, on the couch to remember what it meant when Mary said to John, to his mother Mary and to his disciple John, you are to become a new family. What does that mean for us to become a new family? We looked at refugees crossing in peril across the Mediterranean for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for I am thirsty, we showed women in Mali who walked several miles every day to carry the water for their families, a quarter of that country's population not having access to clean water. We showed the death gurney and witness gallery at San Quentin, for it is finished. And finally, for I now release my spirit to God, we showed the mourners from the Pulse nightclub in Orlando releasing sky lanterns into the air as symbols of grief and symbols of hope. I share all this with you because I understand why most of us don't show up on Good Friday, but we do on Easter. And too often, you and I feel like we live in a Good Friday world because that's what the news tells us. If CNN and NPR and the New York Times and USA Today and Fox News were reporting this story, they would say a radical, subversive, itinerant, scruffy rabbi and his ragtag band of followers came into Jerusalem on Sunday, and on Thursday, the governor sentenced him to the death penalty. He was crucified, died, and his followers are distraught. End of story. But that's not the story we tell. The story we tell is that when you peek in the tomb, it is empty. And there is new life possible and the Spirit of Christ is now living and breathing among us. And whether you think this is factually true or just plain true, it is the story we tell over and over again. We've been telling it for two millennia now, which is the reason you all came here today to hear it again. And that other story, the story about collusion and paying off the soldiers, we don't hear that story that much. I asked Malcolm to read it today because I think we have to remember that extortion and bribery and cover-ups are nothing new. And if you ask our Jewish friends, I don't think, as Matthew said, that story is still told among them anymore. Instead, we tell this story. It is our story to claim and to believe and to live into. Now this past Lent, we decided to look at a book together because we're disturbed, a lot of us in this congregation, about what's going on in this country and the sort of Good Friday, Monday, Thursday atmosphere it seems to breed among us. And so we chose a book by Parker Palmer called Healing the Heart of Democracy. Now I think a lot of people here thought that was going to be a primer in how to do change, how to be a sort of moveon.org. But that's not what it was. It is actually a spiritual book which takes as its premise that for many of us across this nation, our hearts are broken. Just as Abraham Lincoln's heart was broken so many years ago. And the things you and I really care about, the sanctity of life, tolerance, inclusion, the rule of law, character, honesty, integrity, 
and honoring our children and the youngest among us, those things live in our hearts. And to be effective citizens, and I would say effective Christians, we have to claim those values. It is a spiritual book, which means that we value difference, that we have a, a role in creating community, of finding our own voice, of working together as a people. Parker Palmer closes that book with a quote from the great 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. Niebuhr grew up in this country. He lived through the First World War and was appalled by what happened. He became a pacifist and even a socialist. And in the early 50s, he wrote a book called The Irony of American History, saying that we had gotten a little too big for our britches and that we were too intoxicated on our own press clippings and the sense that we are great. And here's what he wrote. Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. And no virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. Hope, faith, love, and forgiveness. These are the qualities that Easter people cultivate. Because the tomb is empty and there is no longer life there, we go out into the streets with that spirit of Christ moving among us, encouraging us to live in to hope, faith, love, and forgiveness. Hope, that thing that kept the generations going, that has kept us telling this story, that has kept us working for the greater good, that has kept us trying to bend the arc of history toward justice. Faith, which preceded us in generations, which carries us still that these stories are important and keep us alive, keep our hearts vibrant. Love, love which cares about our enemies, which blesses those who persecute us, that is wider than the widest sea and greater than the highest sky. And forgiveness, the understanding that none of us gets it right all of the time, no matter what their political party or their religion or their standpoint in this society, that there is a bit of grace always required of us. So my charge to us today, if we want to proclaim the good news that the tomb is empty, is that we recommit ourselves to hope, to faith, to love and forgiveness, that we keep those vibrant and alive with us always. I believe, friends, sisters and brothers, cousins, that we are living in one of the most important historical moments in our lifetimes. And it is incumbent on us to live out the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of each other, for the sake of God's work in the world. We will always have despots and tyrants and demagogues and incompetent people doing horrible things that hurt the least among us. But the question is, are you and I going to stand up and be the Easter people who hold on to these timeless God-given qualities 
of hope and faith and love and forgiveness. Nothing more is required of us and nothing less is expected. So let us run from the tomb and tell the story and live it with our lives. Amen.